Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As I said, we're in, we're in the series on marriage and family. Today's part six. Uh, I want to speak today on restoring family-based worship. What used to be called years ago uh, the family altar. Uh, and we're also touching on the related topic of the role of husbands and wives uh, as well. I want to start by way of introduction with an excerpt from what the, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 put on the overhead. And we read this. And verily, there's one spring in cause of the decay of religion in our day, which is the neglect of the worship of God in families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. May not the gross ignorance and the instability of many, uh, with the profaneness of others, be justly charged upon their parents, who have not trained them up in the way they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected these frequent and solemn commands, which the Lord has laid upon them to catechize and instruct their children. Wow. Now, our believers way back in 1689 saw a lack of commitment among families to family worship and family discipleship. How much more so? Kova Homer. How much more so? A hundred times more so is that true today? Think about how common it would have been for families to catechize and instruct their children in the gospel in England and in America in 1689. Think about how common it would have been back then for believers to have regular family worship, family altar, family discipleship, family Bible study, family prayer. So they thought they had a problem then with fathers and mothers neglecting their spiritual family duties to raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How much more so with us, with you and with me today? Today, family worship has been replaced. It's been replaced by ballet practice and soccer games and baseball leagues and TV and iPhones and Xboxes and video games. The latest Pew Research poll says the vast majority of believing families in America have no regular home-based family worship at all. Even among conservative Southern Baptists, only 1% to 3% had regular family worship. And less than 6% had ever had family worship. So this is a major issue that we need to address. Now most of us, especially if we came from an unbelieving home, like I did, uh, we didn't grow up with this. And so you had no expectation or role model of this when you first got married. And you would know, you would know examples of this and you have never been held accountable for this in any prior congregation or by any prior spiritual leader. But today, I'd like to raise the bar and challenge you to go higher and deeper and institute regular times of family worship in your home. So today, I want to look at the spiritual foundation for all of this. 
And we're going to start, though, with a passage we've been focusing on this whole series, which is Ephesians 5 and 6. The last part of Ephesians 5 focuses on the roles and responsibilities and relationship between husbands and wives as a spiritual union that's intended to present to the world a living picture of the relationship between Yeshua and his people, his bride. And this biblical purpose of marriage should inform not only how we treat our spouse, but also who we would even consider in the first place as a potential husband or wife. If you would even consider dating or courting, let alone marrying a non-believer, what does that say about what you think about marriage spiritually? Let's go back to the basics and look at this very familiar passage. But to properly understand it, we have to put it in context. The passage begins with this statement in Ephesians 5.21. Put down the overhead. Be subject to one another in the fear of Messiah. And then this general statement in verse 21 is then fleshed out with three specific examples in the rest of the passage. With the rest of the passage, by the way, is Ephesians 5.22 through Ephesians 6.9. Remember, in the original manuscripts, there were no chapter and verse markings. And the three examples we see of how this general principle of submission works is this. Uh, wives to husbands, children to parents, servants and employees to masters and employers. That's the grammatical, logical, and hermeneutical structure of this passage. It starts with a general statement in Ephesians 5.21, followed by three examples in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9. Now, we don't see it very easily because of the way our chapters and verses are chopped up, but that's the Greek structure of the original text. And by the way, this original command to submit to one another in these three particular ways... Is within the context, the whole overarching context of being spirit-filled. Look at Ephesians 5.18 to 21 for the context. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks in, his, in the name of the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, to God the Father, and submit to one another in the fear of Messiah. <coughs> Paul's saying here that being filled with the Spirit will result in these three things on the overhead. These three things. Being filled with the Spirit results in, number one, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number two, always giving thanks to God. And number three, submitting to one another in these three ways. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. So if you're not submissive in these relationships... If you're not subject to the authorities that God has, has, has placed in your life, the scriptures are saying you're not spirit-filled. So again, with respect to this command to submit to one another, we're given these three contexts on the overhead, please, these three contexts. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. Now, I can already hear the objections. Because in our ultra-feminist, uh, extreme egalitarian culture which has now infected even the body of Messiah. Some argue against submission of a, husband, of a wife to her husband based on this first verse, Ephesians 5.21, where it says, submit to one another in the fear of Messiah. So they claim that all that's really required uh, is mutual submission. But when you look at the grammatical structure and context of the whole passage, 
It's obvious that verse 21 is a general heading for the three examples that follow in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, which is not mutual submission. Parents do not submit to their children. Masters do not submit to their servants. Likewise, Ephesians 25.21 is not telling husbands to submit to their wives. One more thing about this word submit in verse 21 uh, that demonstrates we're not talking about equal submission, but rather submitting to one another within the confines of these three specific contexts, wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. The word used here for the verb submit in verse 21 is hupotasso. It's actually a military term. And this military term refers to the voluntary submission of a soldier to his superior officer. That's what this verb means in the Greek. It means you submit to someone because of their rank. You submit to them because of the office they hold. The problem with the feminist idea of mutual submission is it doesn't work with this verb. There is no mutual submission in military ranks. The captain doesn't come to the private and say, Private, you know, there are some things I'd really like to discuss with you. I really think we ought to take that hill over there. But I know we're called to, to submit to one another mutually. So I'd rather, I would like to discuss with you, Private, whether or not you feel like charging that hill. And then the private says, Captain, I really appreciate that. I appreciate you honoring this mutual submission agreement that we have to one another in the military. Now, there's a machine gun up there on that hill. <laughs> and I really think, maybe, no. <laughs> now, that's not the way the military works, is it? How does the military work? The superior officer gives an order. The inferior soldier salutes and executes. That's how the military works. It is not mutual submission. And that's the term used here in Ephesians 5.21. This term does not allow for the feminist mutual submission interpretation. So let's look at the rest of the passage. Ephesians 5.22-24. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Messiah is the head of the holy congregation, his body. And is himself its savior. Now as the holy congregation submits to Messiah, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. On the overhead here, uh, note these three phrases. As to the Lord, as Messiah is the head, as the holy congregation submits to Messiah. So we see here that submission of a wife to her husband, the spiritual context is a picture of the relationship between Messiah and his bride, his body. This is, a great, this is the greatest spiritual reality uh, to which marriage is supposed to point. And the submission is ultimately about that spiritual reality. It's not about the relative value of a man and a woman because they're equal. They're equal in honor and value and worth in God's sight. Rather, the different roles they're given is meant to illustrate this greater spiritual reality. Anything with two heads is a monster. You either kill it or you put it in a cage. <laughs> so there has to be biblical headship. Now, what is that headship, though, supposed to look like? That's the question, right? And the next verse tells us what it's supposed to look like. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah loved the holy congregation. How did he love his congregation? And gave himself up for her. 
Now notice we've got a reference here to what it means. The scripture says that biblical headship is a husband lovingly, self-sacrificially laying down his life for his wife. Paul doesn't just say, husbands love your wives and leave it up to you to figure out what it means. No. He, Paul also doesn't allow the culture to define it either. No. And that's a big problem today. Because everyone defining for themselves what love is. So you hear people say, well, we're just not in love anymore. That's very subjective. What does the Bible say about love? Now, I hear people say all the time, well, we just fell out of love. Be careful with that non-biblical language. Anything you can fall into, you can climb out of. <laughs> and this is the source of a lot of failed marriages today. This secular, non-biblical definition of love. People watch a romantic movie and they ask, why can't our love be like that all the time? Well, nobody's is. It's a movie, man. <laughs> the movie ends with this romantic kiss and the credits roll. You don't get to see when they fight and when they argue. <laughs> you don't get to see real life disagreements. So all we're left with is this idealized, fictional, romanticized, and ultimately deceptive and faulty view of what love really means biblically. And you see this romanticized fantasy in a lot of sappy wedding ceremonies, by the way, where the preacher gets up and says, we're here to celebrate the love of, of Jack and Jill. Because there's never been a love in the history of love that's been that is, is as lovingly as the love that Jack and Jill lovingly have for one another today. <laughs> And so we create this unrealistic expectations, and even worse, we completely remove the far more important underlying spiritual reality of what marriage is all about. So number one, we ignore the covenantal context of marriage, and number two, we focus solely on the horizontal human relationship, but that's not what the Word of God says about marriage. Look at the next, look at verse five, Ephesians 5.25 again. Husbands, love your wives. This is Messiah loved the holy congregation, his bride, and gave himself up for her. Now notice that loving your wife, as Messiah loved the holy congregation, is put in the context of what Yeshua did to redeem his bride. There's nothing in this text, by the way, about how Yeshua feels about the holy congregation, his followers. Not one statement. Now, I'm not saying Yeshua is passionless towards his bride. No, not at all. But my point is, what's being emphasized here is something that's very different from our Greco-Roman, romanticized view of love and marriage. What's the biblical purpose of a husband laying down his life for his wife? The next verse tells us. Look at Ephesians 5, 26 to 28. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the, uh, his bride to, to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their wives. There it is. That's the love Messiah has for his bride. And that husbands are to have for their bride. Yeshua gave himself up for his bride for a purpose, for her sanctification, for her cleansing, her righteousness, her holiness, her purity. That's the picture. And husbands, 
We will love our wives better when we understand this biblical purpose of marriage properly. Presenting your wife to Messiah. When our mindset, our mindset is, Lord, you've given me this wonderful gift of this daughter of yours. You've entrusted her to me. You've called us to, to submit herself to me to the end that she be more like you, Yeshua. As a result of having been married to me than she would have been had she not been. Husbands, do you see what an awesome responsibility you have before the Lord in laying down your life for your wife to make her ultimately more like Yeshua? To make her a pure and spotless bride. That's the goal. Think how how different that is from what our our culture says, right? Our culture says the goal of marriage is for you to satisfy me for you to meet my needs, for me to satisfy you and meet your needs, so that when you cease to satisfy me, I'm gone. Notice how different the biblical view of marriage is. The biblical view of marriage is other-oriented and Messiah-centered, not self-centered. Do you see this? This would change the whole perspective when we look at marriage biblically, when we look at love Biblically. Because our culture, and by the way, this has crept into the body of Messiah as well, our culture defines love horizontally only and not vertically as well. But the only way we know what love is, is to ground it in our vertical understanding of love. And love is defined most clearly by God's redemption of us. There is this covenant of redemption within the mystery of the triune Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been eternally loving and relating to each other in perfect harmony and unity as three persons within one and only one God. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai. And they are Echad. The Lord is Echad. He is one. There's this complete unity, this complex unity. He is love, and he defines love. And therefore, we understand love only by looking at what God, at, at who God is, at God and who he is and what he's done. And then love spills over horizontally as well. Because the Father bequeaths to the Son a people. He gives them to him. That's why Yeshua says in John 6, 637, on the overhead, all whom the Father gives to me shall come to me. And when it comes to me, I will no wise, I will certainly not cast out. And in the love for the Father... The Son comes and redeems a people that the Father has given to him. And then the Spirit, the Spirit then applies that redemption in time and space. So that, the, so that the love of the triune God is manifested perfectly in the redemption of sinners like you and me. That's what's pictured here in Ephesians 5. That's what we get to be a part of. That's the biblical picture of other-oriented Self-sacrificial, covenantal love. Next verse, Ephesians 5.28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Messiah also does his body, because we're members of his body. So in the overhead here, uh, we have this dual reality being explained. Uh, Number one, I love my wife because she's a member of Messiah's body. Uh, And number two, I love my wife because she's a member of my body. 
We're one flesh. So she's not just mine, she's me. Because we're one. So you should no more desire to defeat your wife in an argument than your right arm should desire to defeat your left arm. She's not just mine, she's me. Ephesians 5.31 For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a one flesh union. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional. In every way, there's one flesh union. Ephesians 5.32 This mystery is great, but I'm speaking of reference to Messiah and his body. The horizontal reality of our marriage is supposed to be a picture of the vertical reality of Messiah's union with us, his bride. It's supposed to be a Torah picture, if you will, of the consummation yet to come, of our perfect union with Yeshua. That's the awesome picture and purpose of marriage being portrayed here in Ephesians 5. And after talking then about this one flesh union, the very next paragraph, uh, Paul then uh, um, talks about the fruit of that one, that this one flesh union produces. That's Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, parents and children. And we as parents are commanded this in Ephesians 6, 4, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the overhead here, because just as my marriage uh, to my wife has a greater spiritual reality uh, that's beyond just me, so too the raising of my children has a greater spiritual reality. It's beyond just, just me. And when you understand the spiritual foundation we just go, have gone over, uh, fa- now family worship will make all the sense in the world. Now, by the way, there's all sorts of different ways you can do this. Uh, this family worship, family discipleship, family altar, and some are more effective and more productive than others. One extreme is to make it a mechanical check-the-box process. I call this the recipe parents. In other words, you institute a very specific program, like you're baking a cake. And your thought process is, if I just do these things, I can guarantee the outcome for my children. And recipe parents, therefore, live with a great deal of anxiety and fear. Because if I make this one mistake, if I mess up the recipe, it'll be a disaster for my kids. And they say, all my other children turn out great. But with this one, I just don't know. Uh, I mean, we did everything we know how to do. What did we go wrong? That's a recipe parent. And by the way, it's implying, without realizing it, the other children turned out okay because of what you did. And, and, And you must have missed a step in the recipe for this one, and that's why he or she didn't turn out okay. And without realizing it, you just made yourself sovereign over your children's salvation. And here's what you need to know. The ones who turned out okay, that was in spite of you, not because of you. <laughs> because, even, uh, because even your use of the means that God gave you, you did it perfectly. And you did it inconsistently. But God was just gracious and merciful to you and your family. So we can make the common mistake of recipe parents and say, wow, yes, new revelation, family worship. That's another piece of the recipe. I'm glad I learned this. 
Otherwise, my kids might have been messed up. But now I've got this additional key ingredient in, in the recipe that I'm going to add so my kids will turn out great. And for a lot of people, that's what family worship becomes. Just another ingredient in the recipe. Now, the other extreme to avoid is it becomes not just another opportunity, it becomes just another opportunity in order for us to present ourselves as the perfect family. I call this other extreme the resume parents. You, you see, you get the recipe parents and the resume parents. The resume parent says, I'm an awesome believer. Don't believe me? Just watch how well my children behave. Watch how well they behave in public. You see that straight line they're walking in? Pretty good, huh? I'm godly. <laughs> you should do family worship like I do family worship. And by the way, we never skip. <laughs> now, we don't want that approach either. This is, so we have either the recipe parents and the resume parents. We don't want either one of those. What do we want on the overhead? We want instead the redemption parents. Not the recipe or the resume, but the redemption parents. Because who we are as a family is meant to be a picture of redemption. And therefore, our family worship is likewise meant to be a picture of redemption. Uh, it's meant to be a natural outworking and manifestation of our inner spiritual life. And the overhead. Uh, moreover, our family worship is meant to not only be a picture, a picture of redemption, but also a, the process of redemption. Because when we engage in regular family worship, we're bringing the gospel to bear in our children's lives over and over and over again. Because that's their greatest need. So when we gather together in our homes each day for family worship, we have a picture of redemption. We also have this process of redemption whereby the means, the proclamation of the gospel, is being put forth on a consistent and ongoing basis. Now, in contrast, if I see my marriage on a purely horizontal basis, our marriage exists, you know, only for our mutual gratification, then there's no need, right, for, for a spiritual dimension. And likewise, if I see my children only on a horizontal level, if I see my children either as accomplishments for me to brag about or as burdens for me to bear, then there's no need for the vertical spiritual level, no need for family worship. Therefore, it's not until you understand the deeper underlying spiritual theological reality of what it means to be married or what it means to raise children that family worship now makes complete sense. Complete sense. And so I want to encourage you all today to engage in this process because that's who you are in Messiah. It's how we transmit our spiritual heritage to the next generation. Now let me say a word about couples without children or without children at home. Because they tend to assume that family worship does not apply to them. Or if you have no children and then your first child is born, you say, now we've become a family. Please don't say that. It's not true. You were a family from the moment you got married. The couple who has their first child does not become a family. They've expanded their family. The minute you got married, you became a family. Now, if a child coming into your home is what makes you a family, what happens when you become an empty nester? 
Are you suddenly no longer a family? Sadly, many people think this way. The last child leaves, and there's a funk that descends upon the home like a dark cloud. Because in our minds, we're not a family anymore. And we didn't adequately invest in and prioritize our marriage relationship because we thought we primarily existed for the sake of our children. So all of our energy and effort and passion and priority went into raising our children. And now the kids are gone. We turn around and we look at each other and we say, who are you? And if we're not careful, family worship can actually feed into this dysfunction, this imbalance. So you don't first become a family when you have children. And, don't, and you don't just exist for your children. Otherwise, you'll pervert family worship and it does one more thing you do to make your children the center of the universe to the detriment of your marriage and your spouse. And family worship will tragically become just one more thing to make the wheels fall off of your marriage when your children leave home. So I want to look now as we begin to close at some practical steps. Um, we put this on the overhead. Number one, take stock of the spiritual condition of your children. Practical step number one. Fathers and mothers, your children have immortal souls that will stand before the Lord one day. Do you pray for them and weep for them and intercede for them? Third John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. How much time do we spend watching TV or surfing the net versus how much time we spend praying for our children? How much time do we do everything we can to prepare them to get into the right college versus how much time we spend preparing them for eternity and dwelling with the Lord in heaven? There is nothing more real or significant than the fact that your sons and your daughters have immortal souls that will stand before Yeshua one day. When you look at your kids, what do you see? Do you see a future lawyer or doctor or musician, or athlete? Or do you mainly see a person who who will spend eternity in either heaven or hell? Do you see a soul that must surrender their life to Messiah? So my number one desire isn't that my children be wealthy or successful, no. My number one desire is that they be saved and walk with the Lord. My number one desire is that they know Yeshua. That they know uh, that the desire uh, and, 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 the, and, and this desire uh, and this for, for my children, uh, it, it trumps every other desire. Everything else must take a backseat to that. John Wesley, I'm going to put this on the overhead. John Wesley wrote this Children are immortal spirits whom God has for a time entrusted to your care, that you may train them up in holiness. And fit them to enjoy God's presence. This is a glorious and crucial trust. Their soul is more valuable than the whole world. Each child, therefore, you're to watch over with utmost care. So that when you're called to give an account, 
You may do so with joy and delight, and not grief and regret. John Wesley. So practical step number one is giving, is, is seeing your children's greatest need is regeneration. This will help us avoid the, the secular psychology uh, behaviorism trap uh, of Skinner and Rogers and Young. Uh, and instead, see your children as God sees them, as sinners in need of redemption. Johnny doesn't disobey because he's cranky uh, or tired or hungry or hyperactive or because he's not been conditioned properly. No, he disobeys because he's a fallen son of Adam with an inherent sin nature. Step number two, instruct your children in the gospel. Showing them their need is only step number one. Giving them the solution is step number two. You're not trying to merely manage their behavior. You're to instruct them in righteousness. Your child's greatest need is the gospel of Yeshua. Only the gospel can transform their sin nature. So you must preach the gospel to them again and again and again. James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. The solution for your children is repentance and submission to the Lord. James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is key. Parents, you must bring your children back to the cross again and again and again. You must teach them that they sin why they sin, what the consequences are, and how Yeshua and him risen is their only hope. Step number three, rebuke and restrain your children. You can't prevent your children from sinning, but as parents, you must do your best to restrain and rebuke it. A policeman doesn't just watch a crime being committed and refuse to stop it just because he can't change the criminal's heart. No. The policeman, what does he do? He restricts and restrains the criminal. That's his duty. Likewise, parents, although you can't stop your children from having a sinful heart, it's your duty and responsibility to rebuke and correct and discipline and restrain them. Set boundaries and enforce them. Children actually crave boundaries and they're insecure without them. Here are four steps you can take when your children misbehave. That's on the overhead. Number one, you call them aside. You take time to deal with the matter. Don't fly off the handle on the one hand. Don't let it slide on the other. Take your child aside and deal with it seriously. Number two, tell them what the commandments, the commandments and the rules are that they've broken. Open up your Bible. Show them what it, what, what it says and what, what they violated. Emphasize they don't just, they're not just breaking your law 
But they broke God's law. Use the word of God as your spiritual sword to prick their conscience. Number three, uh, number three here. Show them the penalty for sin in the word of God. Let your children know that the Lord's serious about what they've done. Show them what the word of God says is the penalty for those who continue in sin. Warn them with the word. Let the word do the work in their hearts. And number four, then call them to repent. Your children must be admonished to acknowledge and confess and repent of and forsake their sin. Yeshua himself says in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So rebuking and restraining your children is step number three. Step number four on the overhead, charge your children to obey God's commands. I still remember the charges and the commands my own father gave me growing up. Uh, He wasn't even a believer, but they stuck with me and they, they guided me. In fact, they still guide me to this day. So though he is dead, he still speaks. Take advantage of every opportunity you have to sow into your children godly wisdom and virtue and character traits. Charge your children with the scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, it's living and it's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your children's heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be competent and equipped for every good work. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Messiah. Let your children daily hear the word of Messiah in your home. You have a very limited window of opportunity with your children. They will be gone before you know it. Don't waste it. Redeem the time. That's step number four. Step number five in the overhead. Be a godly example to your children. Your children ultimately will learn far more by watching you than by listening to you. A godly character is more caught than taught. So set an example in your speech, in your morals, in your time with the Lord, in your whole life, the way you treat your spouse. Set examples that they can follow. Which of us wouldn't be forced to admit, if we're honest, that much of the sinfulness and selfishness and worldliness that we see in our children is merely a reflection of what they learned from us. Ouch. Our children are often a mirror of our own sinfulness. Parents, you must practice what you preach. Your kids are watching you all the time. Set a godly role model and example. And when you mess up, confess it and repent to your children. Let them see this example too of you repenting. When you tell your kids to be kind to their brother or sister, are you kind to your spouse? When you exhort your children to be patient with one another, are you patient with them? When you tell them to be quiet, do you do it as you're yelling and screaming at them? (laughs) Be a godly role model. Step number six, final step. 
pray for your children. Pray for their salvation. How many parents fall on their face before God, praying their kids get into the right school, but don't spend one hour begging God that their children get into heaven? Pray for their salvation. Carry their names before the Lord daily. Cry out to the Lord on their behalf. You can never pray too much for your children. Wrestle with the Lord on their behalf. Not letting go until you have his blessing for them. If you do nothing else, nothing else home from this whole drash, I beg you to pray for your sons and your daughters. This is the heart of a true priest of his home. Petition the Lord day and night for your children's salvation and welfare and spiritual growth and maturity. Remember, you are in a spiritual battle for the eternal souls of your children. And make sure you have your children pray with you. Teach them how to pray. Instruct them. Show them. Be an example for them. Your children will never forget you praying with them. It will be indelibly stamped upon their souls. Forever, ever uh, encouraging uh, and blessing them. So be the priest of your home. Praying for and with your children. And leading them in worship and discipleship and study of the word. I'm going to close with this brief statement, a brief story of a recounting. Because uh, that's time when family worship is done right. From right motives. It is glorious. I recently heard about, uh, from a Messianic rabbi, about how this one particular family and his congregation all gathered around their father recently in the hospital room uh, as he was dying. And, and the rabbi was being in the hospital room with them, uh, with the mother and the children and the father's brothers and sisters and their spouses and the children's spouses and the grandchildren. The whole extended family, they shared in this glorious going home experience. The family all read scriptures together uh, at, at his bedside, prayed, sang worship songs as they took their father by the hand and walked him into eternity. And what did that process look like? It looked like what family worship in their home had already looked like for years. The whole congregation, of course, couldn't be there in that hospital room. But the microcosm was there. The family was there. Picturing what worship will be like in heaven. And every time we gather as a congregation for worship, and as you gather in your home for times of family worship, it can likewise be that significant and that glorious. Every time. Because the significance of our worship isn't determined by a particular setting. No, it's determined by the one whom we worship. Messiah is just as worthy of our worship here at Shul or in your home as he was in that hospital room. And so when you gather for family worship in your home, know that God is glorified. And you're doing what you were made for. Amen.
Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. And I'd like the music team to come on up. Father, hallelujah. We thank you, Father, for these glorious truths from your word about husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children. Lord, help us to see our marriages and our families as pictures of your love, Yeshua. Your love for us and for us to live accordingly. Help us as husbands to lay down our lives for our wives. Help us as wives to to recognize the spiritual headship of our husbands. Help us as children to obey our parents. And most of all, give us your vision for the family. For we as parents, we want to help us to catch your vision for how we are to teach and correct and instruct and disciple and restrain and rebuke and discipline and train up our children to love you and to serve you. Give us a vision for family worship, family altar, family discipleship. Help us make a a regular, even daily, part of our life as a family. A family who loves you and follows you, Yeshua, with all of our hearts and walks with you. Whether we can homeschool or not, help us make it a priority to have regular times of prayer and Bible study and praise and worship within our family to grow in you, Lord, as a family. Lord, help us to take stock of the spiritual condition of our children. Help us see their greatest need is is regeneration, is rebirth, is true saving faith and transforming faith. Help us to preach the gospel to our children, uh, to rebuke and restrain them when needed, uh, to charge them to obey your commands. Lord, help us to be godly examples as parents and not as hypocrites. And convict us to be always praying for our children. Lord, I ask you to bless and encourage and anoint and protect every family here. Pray, pray this all in your holy name. Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.